Hello and welcome to the Litigation Podcast presented by Blackstone Chambers. Join our barristers as they discuss their expertise on trending topics and debates in the legal sector. If you want to be part of the discussion, subscribe below to receive our latest episodes. I'm Tom Croxford KC, the chair of the Employment Group in Chambers, following the elevation of Jane Mulcahy to co-head of Chambers. It's my pleasure to welcome you all to the Blackstone Annual Employment Competition Seminar podcast, part two. Craig Rajkapoor will talk on conspiracy claims and professional conduct issues relating to them. Craig is a stellar senior junior. He spends so much time being sole counsel, I've been against him in only two large cases, but have yet to have the pleasure of leading him. He's a true expert in team moves and injunctive claims, particularly involving interdealer brokers in the insurance, financial and scientific sectors. So I'm going to be talking about conspiracy claims, powerful weapon or legal and tactical mistake. What I'm going to cover, so the tactical, legal and professional conduct issues for solicitors in advancing conspiracy claims. So I'm going to start by looking at the elements of the two causes of action. I'm then going to talk about the very recent decision of Mr Justice Fancourt in Mackenzie and Rosenblatt's solicitors, where he considered the professional conduct rules for solicitors in alleging conspiracy claims and what is required to plead or advance those claims. And I'm going to finish off by thinking about the tactical issues in putting forward conspiracy claims. So starting then with the elements of the causes of action. The first and probably most common one is an unlawful means conspiracy. And that requires four things. First, a combination or common design of two or more persons. Secondly, to use unlawful means. And we now know that unlawful means can include breaches of contract, breaches of fiduciary duty, and breaches of the equitable duty of confidence, which are probably the ones most commonly seen in this employee competition sphere. And then thirdly, intending as either a means or an end to injure the claimant by those means, but not, we are told, just being the foreseeable consequences. Now that might sound clear in theory, but I have to say in practice, I find it very difficult to envisage where in this sphere, something would not be at least a means to an end, but would rather just be a foreseeable consequence. Looking at the case law, there is an example where Shirley Bassey decided not to perform her recording obligations for her record company. And what the court said there was the fact that the record company then went on to breach its contract with the backing singers for Shirley Bassey was a foreseeable consequence of her actions, but it wasn't either an end or the means to the end. So not impossible to see how you could get into that sort of analysis in the employee competition sphere but it will be pretty unusual is likely to be the case. The fourth point is that it must cause the claimant loss and damage. And that's an important point. Loss and damage is an essential element of the tortious cause of action. Absent proof of loss or damage, there is no tort. Then we have conspiracy to injure, which is a different form of the conspiracy tort. As with unlawful means conspiracy, you need a combination or common design of two or more persons. But importantly, the predominant purpose of the defendant must be to injure the claimant. Now, that's a high bar. It's not just showing that the means 
were intended, you actually have to show that your predominant purpose was to injure the claimant. And that's often hard to show on the evidence. And then thirdly, it needs to cause the claimant loss and damage. So as with the unlawful means conspiracy tort, loss and damage is an essential element of the cause of action. What's important about this form of conspiracy is that there's no requirement for the acts themselves to be unlawful. So it's a powerful thing. This predominant purpose to injure the claimant can turn lawful acts into an unlawful conspiracy, which will enable the claimant to claim a remedy. Turning then to the recent decision in McKenzie and Rosenblatt, it was in February of this year, and as I mentioned earlier, the judge was Mr. Justice Fancourt. It was a professional negligence claim, and in that claim, Rosenblatt's solicitors had, perhaps ambitiously, pleaded an unlawful means conspiracy to dismiss Mr. McKenzie in order to obtain his shares. I say perhaps ambitiously because there was CCTV footage of Mr. McKenzie assaulting a fellow director at a work event and the purported reason for his dismissal was that assault on a fellow director. In considering whether or not the professional negligence claim was made out, Mr Justice Fancourt considered in some detail the professional conduct and legal issues in advancing such claims. Starting with the SRE Code of Conduct, and it's the old version of the rules that was considered, the 2011 versions, and he considered the indicative behaviour that would be a breach of the code, which included drafting any documents relating to any proceedings containing a any contention which you do not consider to be properly arguable, or b, any allegation of fraud, unless you are instructed to do so and you have material which you reasonably believe shows, on the face of it, a case of fraud. Interestingly, Mr Justice Fancourt said that the behaviours in this section do not relate to writing correspondence generally, though they might be considered to apply to a formal pre-action protocol letter of claim which is the start of a process governed by court rules and practice directions. So what is being said there is that when you're writing a formal pre-action protocol letter, the strictures in relation to alleging fraud apply. And that's an important point to bear in mind in practice. Of course, the 2011 rules have now changed, but new rule 2.4 says you only make assertions or put forward statements, representations, or submissions to the court or others which are properly arguable. But the Solicitor's Regulatory Authority has indicated that the deletion of the old indicative behaviours is not intended to change the expectations on solicitors' behaviours. And having spoken with a couple of specialists in this regulatory sphere, they are clear that the same strictures as to alleging fraud will likely continue to apply under the new Code of Conduct. So it's an important thing to bear in mind. So what material is required in order to be able to allege fraud or something akin to a fraud? In Medcalf and Mardell, the court said that at the proprietary stage, the requirement is not that counsel should necessarily have before them evidence in admissible form, but they should have material of such character as to lead responsible counsel to include that serious allegations could properly be based upon it. So you might have inadmissible hearsay, which would be fine. And another example might be that you have privileged material that the court wouldn't see, but would be sufficient for you to reach the view that there was a proper basis to allege fraud. 
In the Rosenblatt case, Mr. Justice Fancourt said it doesn't need to be something other than what the client is saying, because it might be that the client overheard the relevant discussion amounting to a conspiracy or plan to defraud, or that they were informed of that by someone else. However, he cautioned, the lawyer needs to be aware of the issue of reliability of their client's account. The more extreme the allegation, or limited the material, or inconsistent it is with other available material, the less it might be reasonable to rely on the client's word as to the source of the allegation. Certainly, I see all the time in the employee competition sphere clients who come to me saying, well, I know that they've got our confidential information, or I know that they conspired in this way. But when you test them, they say, well, that just must be the case. And I'm afraid that won't do. Just a belief that it might be right isn't going to be sufficient to allege fraud. There's got to, as responsible lawyers, be a proper basis for putting that forward on your client's behalf. Importantly, an unlawful means conspiracy is considered by the court to be akin to fraud. So in the case of CEF and Monday, which is frequently cited in relation to the issue of full and frank disclosure, where are hearings on short notice, the court said the charge of conspiracy in civil proceedings is a grave charge and the standard of proof is commensurate with the seriousness of that charge. Unless for some good reason it's to be treated substantially only as a technical matter, and that'll be quite unusual, I interpose, such an allegation equally with an allegation of fraud must be clearly pleaded and clearly proved by convincing evidence. And similarly, in Ivy Technology and Martin, the court said conspiracy to injure must be pleaded to a high standard. When a conspiracy claim alleges dishonesty, then all the strictures that apply to pleading fraud are directly engaged, i.e. it's necessary to plead all the specific facts and circumstances supporting the inference of dishonesty by the defendant. There's a further case in 2021 of this year, Lacatamia Shipping and Nobu, where the court said, although most of the authorities address the applicable principles in the context of pleading and proving fraud and associated dishonesty, aspects of the applicable principles will be of relevance when allegations of serious wrongdoing are made more generally, even if there's no requirement to plead or prove fraud as such as an element of the cause of action, such as an unlawful means conspiracy. And even though the strictures applicable to a plea of fraud or dishonesty are not automatically triggered. So a clear statement from the court that an unlawful means conspiracy is likely to engage, at least by analogy, the strictures that apply to claiming fraud. So, to advance the claim of unlawful means conspiracy, first, you must consider it to be properly arguable. And secondly, you must reasonably believe that the allegation is supported by reasonable grounds or as Mr. Justice Fancourt put it in a slightly different way, whether there was objectively sufficient material to give rise to a prima facie case of conspiracy. So what does all that mean in practice? Well, in my view, a number of departures from a team without more may not be sufficient to allege a conspiracy. The fact that five or six people from a team have left at or around the same time doesn't necessarily mean that there's been an unlawful means conspiracy. And that's why, as is nearly always the case in this employee competition sphere, investigations are so important. The client needs to get the forensic IT people in, checking what was sent, checking what was deleted, when it was deleted, 
and people investigations are also important. Once you start to catch people out in exit interviews, when you start to get information from clients that suggests that things have happened, all of that can go to being able properly to allege an unlawful means conspiracy, even if your instructions are, for example, that we can't use the client names because it's too commercially sensitive. It gives you the basis upon which to make the allegation. The other thing is to be very careful about what you say in pre-action correspondence, particularly if it's a formal pre-action protocol letter. We are looking into whether there may have been an unlawful means conspiracy, maybe okay. There has been an unlawful means conspiracy, is making the allegation, and in those circumstances, you have to be clear you can properly make that allegation. So what then are the tactical considerations in respect of making an allegation of conspiracy? Well, first of all, even if there is a sufficient basis to assert conspiracy, do you want it? Do you need it? Always worth asking those questions. On the plus side, it can open up disclosure and evidence of further wrongdoing, which can be extremely helpful either in pushing a settlement or in proving a wider claim as part of a trial. However, it can and does lead to arid pleading disputes based on the fraud case law and whether all the facts have properly been pleaded and what facts can properly be put to witnesses as part of seeking to prove your claim. It undoubtedly raises the temperature. So it's always worth asking, does that assist with settlement? Bear in mind that it may make the judge more wary. The judge will think this is a serious charge I need to have really clear evidence before I'm prepared to accept that finding. Ask yourself practically, what does it add to, first of all, the employee's contractual, equitable, and sometimes fiduciary duties? What does it add to the claims against the new employer in inducing breach of contract, breach of the equitable duty of confidence, and potentially knowing assistance in breach of fiduciary duties? In a number of cases, it may not add very much at all. And in those circumstances, why plead it? Why go there? Be particularly careful of asserting a conspiracy to injure, also known as a lawful means conspiracy. You are setting the bar for yourself very high. It requires cross-examination of witnesses on the basis that they deliberately intended as the primary purpose of what they were doing to damage your client rather than, as is more often the case, their primary purpose being to benefit their own business. There is a danger of overreaching and there's a real danger of the defendants getting sympathy from the judge and you ending up without the findings that you would hope to have. So in conclusion, always stand back and reflect on the purpose of advancing the particular conspiracy claim that you're thinking about and decide whether or not tactically that is the right thing to do. Sarah Wilkinson will discuss whether the new willingness to grant damages in lieu of injunction may permeate into employment law. Sarah is one of our brilliant juniors with huge experience across employment law, including numerous injunctive relief applications in covenant cases in both KB and Chancery. As a young barrister, the words from a clerk could you just pop across the road tomorrow and get an injunction? Used to fill me with absolute horror. Just pop is, of course, clerk speak for 
sacrifice the next 24 hours, get no sleep and live on pret sandwiches to assist your client. As soon as you heard those words, you knew the next 24 hours were going to be a mad scramble. There was no just pop about any of it. You needed to assemble witness statements, put together draft particulars of claim, constantly harangue solicitors on the phone for instructions, try to judge how wide and hard to go on the terms of the injunction, try to find out which judge was likely to be sitting in the interim applications court that day and what their particular views about penal notices were. You will be familiar with this. And there is good reason why it's this hard. It is because, of course, injunctions are the nuclear option. Asking the court to order someone to do something or not to do something with the threat of some time in the cells for contempt if you get it wrong is at the extreme end of the court's toolkit of powers. Courts are, by and large, reluctant to order them. They need persuading that, taking all the circumstances into account, there is realistically no other way of protecting your client's interests. And the law on injunctions has increased across many different areas of law, preventing publications like the last Harry Potter book and Spycatcher, protests, particularly animal rights, stalking, trespass and nuisance, and in our own practices, protecting confidential information and enforcing restricting covenants. The one area in which the courts are perhaps a little more free with the injunctive pen is nuisance and trespass because of the nature of the problem. When it comes to property interests, there's just one thing most landowners do not want, and that is unwanted visitors or unwanted interference. And the simplest form of protection is to tell those unwanted interests to get off your land. So the point of today's talk, Whilst we tend to see injunctions only in the context of our own practice areas, be it property, public or employment, in fact, the courts see a bigger picture when it comes to injunctions, are in the process of developing more general principles, which we, as employment lawyers, are going to need to pay attention to. And that's why today I'm going to be talking about Fiennes and Board of Trustees of the Tate Gallery, a Supreme Court decision about nuisance which came out on the 1st of February this year. Fiennes has absolutely nothing to do with employment law, but everything to do with how the courts view the concept of competing legal rights when deciding whether damages or injunctions are the appropriate remedy. And this is something we're going to need to factor into our calculations when seeking injunctions to enforce a restrictive covenant or unlawful use of confidential information. I don't think I can describe the facts in Fiennes more succinctly than Lord Leggett, with whom Lord Reed and Lord Lloyd-Jones agreed. He said, On the top floor of the Blavatnik building, which is part of the Tate Modern Art Museum on Bankside in London, there is a public viewing gallery. It is a popular visitor attraction. From the viewing gallery, visitors can enjoy 360-degree panoramic views of London, when the claim was brought, about five and a half million people were visiting the Tate Modern each year. And of them, several hundred thousand visited the viewing gallery with a limit of 300 people at any one time. Entry to the museum and the viewing gallery is free, but the top floor of the Blavatnik building is also available to hire for external events. Such events are very important financially to the Tate Modern because they bring in significant income. Unfortunately for the claimants in this case, 
visitors to the viewing gallery can see straight into the living areas of their flats. So the claim in Fiennes was that the claimants sought injunctions requiring Tate Modern to prevent members of the public from viewing their flats from the southern part of the viewing gallery walkway, or alternatively, an award of damages. At first instance, Mr Justice Mann described the problem. A very significant number of visitors to the Tate's viewing gallery display an interest in the interiors of the claimant's flats. Some look, some peer, some photograph, some wave. Occasionally, binoculars are used. He went on to find extreme overlooking can be a form of visual intrusion capable of being a nuisance. But not in this case, because use of the Tate viewing gallery was a reasonable use of their property by the Tate. And the claimants were architects of their own misfortune. They bought properties with glass walls. And there were things they could do to mitigate the intrusion. Remedial measures such as lowering their blinds or installing net curtains. I'm not sure myself that the type of people who buy this type of apartment are really the type of people who like net curtains, but I see what he was driving at. And here you can see the heart of the issue that went all the way to the Supreme Court. The court considered the ordinary use of the property rights of each party, viewed objectively. In the Court of Appeal, the court found that Mr Justice Mann was wrong in law, but dismissed the appeal on the basis that overlooking of this sort was not a nuisance, and most importantly, that not every annoyance to a neighbour has a legal remedy. So, we arrive in the Supreme Court because the claimants appealed again from the Court of Appeal decision, and their lordships found that both Mr Justice Mann and the Court of Appeal were wrong. This was a straightforward case of visual intrusion causing nuisance. They attributed the lower court's hesitation in allowing the claim to a sense that it was very unattractive that the private rights of a few, read in a wealthy few, should prevent the general public from enjoying a view of London and a major national museum from providing public access to that view. They thought it was not a justification for the nuisance that the general public would benefit from a viewing platform. They also considered that those questions about what was in the public interest were relevant to remedy and not liability. Hold that thought. As to remedy, they found that public interest might sometimes justify awarding damages rather than granting an injunction, but could not justify denying the victim any remedy at all. As to whether an injunction should be granted in the case where it's likely that conflicting interests are engaged other than the party's interests, they cited Lord Sumption in a case called Lawrence in 2014. He said that the Supreme Court should not fetter court's discretion by prescribing relevant factors, they should just work it out on a case-by-case -case basis. So the Supreme Court in Fiennes remitted the question of remedy to the High Court, but in the meantime, Tate Modern have closed the viewing level. The questions for the High Court at the remedy hearing were set out in the Supreme Court. Whether there is a public interest in maintaining the gallery with a 360-degree view capable of overriding the claimant's prima facie remedy of an injunction, whether any remedial measures which the Tate may propose are sufficient to avoid an injunction or damages, the scope of any injunction, 
and questions of quantification of award of any damages. There's a dissenting judgment from Lord Sales and Lord Kitchen for those of you who like that sort of thing. So why do I need to think about this when I'm about to walk over to the Interim Applications Court? So first of all, I check the position in my trusty third edition of Goulding, in which the esteemed author of the section on injunctions says, I quote, in practice, interim injunctions in employee competition cases frequently proceed on the basis that damages are not an adequate remedy for either party. It is, however, very difficult for a defendant in an employee competition case to persuade a court that damages would be adequate for the employer. And the author gives two principal reasons for this. Firstly, it's impossible to quantify the loss resulting from an employee's wrongdoing. And secondly, the employee may not have resources to pay the damages. Easy, I think. My client is an employer bringing a claim against an employee who's copied a database of client contacts containing sensitive pricing and technical information about how we customise our bespoke product for specific customers. We can prove we've lost customers as a result. I have a very good shot at getting my interim injunction because we don't know the extent of our losses and we don't know what other intellectual property use he may have made of the technical information. But not so fast. What about Fearns? If I cast my claim as competing legal rights, it looks in the simplest terms like this. The claimant's rights are an employer's rights to restrain trade and an employer's rights to protect confidential information. The defendant employee's rights are their rights to freedom to trade and their right to use information acquired during the course of employment. But do I need to consider the public interest in the balance of competing rights as a result of fiends? Will the interim injunctions court veer more towards compensating the loss rather than stopping the activity if both parties are exercising objectively reasonable rights, even though one has breached the others? In short, do I need to add the public interest as an interested party? My view is that the impact of fiends is potentially quite subtle in the employment context. It might have some traction in the appellate courts, but I suspect it won't unduly affect business in the interim applications court. I say the effect may be quite subtle because, firstly, you can argue that fiends is restricted to the tort of nuisance and isn't flexible enough to cover the specific issues that arise in the employment context. Secondly, you can, and always should anyway, emphasise that injunctions are always a discretionary remedy dependent on the specific facts of the case. But what if there were a public interest here? What would it be? Fiennes emphasises there are some rights that people value largely independently of money, such as sitting in your living room without being overlooked by the general public. That might be true in relation to the misappropriation of extremely sensitive confidential information, such as health details, but probably not in the case of a technical database. But would freedom to work be an area in which the public interest is engaged? Possibly. It would be a brave judge at first instance that took on questions of the public interest in this context, but it's not impossible. And because of the cross-curricular nature of injunctions, you need at least to have fins and that possibility in the back of your mind. And I know the relevant author in Goulding will be revising that section in the next edition as a result of it. So, 
With our cross-curricular injunction activity in mind, keep a lookout for the next instalment in Rewriting the Law of Injunctions by the Supreme Court in a case called Barking and Dagenham London Borough Council against Persons Unknown. That's a case about trespass by traveller communities on local authority land. It asks whether there's a jurisdictional difference between interim and final injunctions, and it has significant implications for both notice and service of injunctions. Tristan Jones of this parish and I both appeared in this as amicus to the court in the lower courts. But sadly, the Supreme Court decided it would be okay doing this one on its own and didn't require us and the judgment's due out any moment now. If only they'd required an amicus in Fiennes, we might have enjoyed the site visit that Mr Justice Mann felt was critical to his decision-making. I hope he took his binoculars. Thanks very much for listening. Emmeline Plews will talk about a recent Court of Appeal decision on covenants, which gives important guidance on severance. Emmeline is one of our excellent junior juniors who's been undertaking the full gamut of employment cases for the last three years. She's been very well trained by both Craig and Dia and is very much a rising star. So I'm going to do a run through of the recent decision of the Court of Appeal in Boydell and NZP Limited and another. It's worth saying at the outset that this is a short judgment as Court of Appeal decisions go and you'd be forgiven for thinking it's really just Employee Competition Law 101. That's certainly how the court presents its reasoning. But given it's relatively rare that we get appellate decisions in this area, it's always helpful to look a bit more closely. So starting with the case in a nutshell, Dr Boydell was employed by NZP, the first claimant, as head of their commercial speciality products. NZP is in the business of developing and producing bile acid derivatives for sale to pharmaceutical companies. In other words, it's a niche and highly specialised area. The second claimant was NZP's ultimate holding company. Dr Boydell resigned to go to a competitor to head up their bile acid business, and his employment ended on the 25th of January 2023. The day before that happened, NZP issued its claim, and it sought to enforce two sets of restrictive covenants. One was contained in Dr Boydell's employment contract and the other was contained in a shareholders agreement. They ran for one and two years respectively. At first instance, His Honour Judge Auerbach granted NZP an interim injunction enforcing the one-year covenants in the employment contract until trial. He refused to enforce the two-year restrictions in the shareholders agreement. Turning now then to the main battleground between the parties, Clause 3.1 contained the critical non-compete in Dr Boydell's contract. I won't read it all out verbatim because it's a long and complex clause, but in essence Dr Boydell was restricted from being involved in any activity for another entity which carried out business activity in competition with NZP. Now there were some additional passages in Clause 3.1 which His Honour Judge Auerbach considered should be severed. The first of those extended the non-compete to any of NZP's affiliates, including each entity within the wider group of companies, and also included business activity that any group company was actively considering carrying out, even if it wasn't yet doing so. The second passage that His Honour Judge Auerbach severed concerned certain activities that would count as competitive business activity, 
Following their severance, such competitive business activity wouldn't include activities relating to the supply chain and using bile from certain animals. Suffice to say that taken as a whole, the clause isn't exactly standard non-compete wording. On appeal, Dr Boydell challenged the decision on two main grounds. Firstly, that the judge should have held that clause 3.1 was too wide and therefore was unenforceable as a restraint of trade. And secondly, that the judge had impermissibly severed the passages that we've just spoken about. And having made multiple severances, he failed to stand back and consider whether the totality of these meant he had impermissibly rewritten the contract. So what did the Court of Appeals say? There were three main strands to the Court of Appeals reasoning. The first was a note of caution for claimants in relation to the test for an interim injunction. As is familiar, a claimant seeking an interim injunction must show that there's a serious issue to be tried. NZP, the court said, had proceeded on the basis that that is all they needed to show on the merits. In line with many courts before it, the Court of Appeal emphasised that American cyanamide is neither a statute nor a biblical text. It went on to explain that whilst, as in the case of American cyanamide, it's one thing to say in a case of such complexity and duration that on an interlocutory injunction application the court should not go beyond asking whether there is a serious question to be tried, but in an employment case of far more limited scope, it may be unjust to stop at that. And it should always be remembered that the statutory test for the grant of an injunction is whether it is just and convenient. Going on, the court explained, if the court, even making the assumption that any disputes of fact would be resolved at trial in the claimant's favour, concludes that on its proper construction, the relevant clause is plainly unenforceable, it should say so. In such a case, it cannot be said that there is a serious issue to be tried. So the lesson here for claimants is that the first limb of American cyanamide is not to be taken too lightly. Now, of course, it's been the case that where a trial won't be held until the covenant has expired or substantially expired, it's permissible for the court to form a preliminary view of prospects. However, the reasoning here is both a reminder and goes a bit wider, and you can expect the court to roll up its sleeves in relation to the merits. Moving on now to the second strand in the court's reasoning, principles of construction. On Dr Boydell's argument that his non-compete was too wide to be enforceable, the Court of Appeal reiterated what it considered to be familiar and long-established basics of contractual construction. First, the court relied on the passage in Home Counties Dairies Limited in Skilton, in which Lord Justice Salmon said, If a clause is valid in all ordinary circumstances which can have been contemplated by the parties, it is equally valid, notwithstanding that it might cover circumstances which are so extravagant, fantastical, unlikely or improbable, that they must have been entirely outside the contemplation of the parties. Secondly, the court relied on the validity principle, as explained in Egon Zender and Tillman by Lord Wilson. The validity principle proceeds on the premise that the parties to a contract or other instrument will have intended it to be valid. It therefore provides that, in circumstances in which a clause in their contract is capable of having two meanings, one which would result in its being void and the other which would result in its being valid, the latter should be preferred. It's perhaps helpful here to pause and know that each of these principles of construction, the fantastical principle, if I can call it that, and the validity principle, work in favour of the employer. 
by providing the courts with interpretive tools to assist in finding covenants are enforceable, even where they are ambiguous or potentially too wide. Moving now to the final of the three strands in the court's reasoning, principles of severance. This, of course, is another tool in the court's armory for saving covenants, and Tillman remains the most recent and authoritative decision on severance, and the Court of Appeal repeated the three criteria Lord Wilson identified there. The first is the so-called blue pencil test, which must be satisfied. That requires the unenforceable provision to be capable of being removed without the necessity of adding or modifying the words which remain. Secondly, there must then be adequate consideration for the remaining terms, and that doesn't usually cause an issue. Thirdly, the court must then be satisfied that removal of the provision would not generate any major change in the overall effect of all the post-employment restraints in the contract. It is for the employer to establish that its removal would not do so. So standing back from these principles that the court identified, how did they go on to apply them to the case of Dr Boydell? The court started by finding that the clause was, that's the non-compete, as broad as Dr Boydell contended. It restrained him from being involved in any activity for the benefit of any third party that carried out competitive business activity with NZP in the wider group. The court considered that the second of the severed passages, that was the one which related to specific business activities, was indeed peripheral in the court's words, and they weren't at all phased by the approach the judge at first instance had taken. The Court of Appeal, however, gave more consideration to the first of the severed passages, which restricted Dr Boydell from business activity that was in competition with other companies in the group. In relation to this, Dr Boydell had argued that the unnecessary breadth of the clause was illustrated by the fact that other companies in the group were less specialist than NZP. For instance, one company produced some general pharmaceutical products such as nasal sprays. On a proper construction of the clause, it was argued, he would be unable to work for 12 months for any company selling pharmaceutical products that included nasal sprays, such as boots or superdrug. That, he argued, went far beyond what was reasonably necessary to protect NZP's interests. The Court of Appeal disagreed, though. Dr Boydell's construction of the clause fell within the principle in home counties' dairies. Had the parties been asked at the time they agreed the covenants whether after leaving NZP Dr Boydell would be able to go to work for Boots or Superdrug, the court was confident that both parties would have said, of course. The court's explanation for that was that the whole burden of the clause is directed at the specialist activities of NZP. One might then ask why a clause which expressly sought to go wider than that should be upheld, but that is precisely the potentially far-reaching effect of the fantastical principle. In the alternative, Dr Boydell argued that even after having been severed, restraining a former employee from being involved in any capacity with any third party which competes with the former employer's business, whether or not it was in the same field of activity as when the employee worked there, was also too wide. Again, though, the Court of Appeal disagreed. It emphasised that each decision is fact-sensitive and noted that where the employer is a large public company covering a variety of fields of business activity, such a covenant may be difficult to justify. But this, however, is far less obvious where the company has a highly specialised or niche business. 
Startups and businesses specialising in niche areas of science and tech are therefore likely to take some comfort in this decision. It is, though, important to remember that Dr Boydell had a very senior position, and issues such as whether he'd had access to confidential information, etc., were not in dispute. All in all, the court concluded that severance was open to the judge, and once severed, it wasn't clear that the clause was too wide to be enforceable. Hence, there was a serious issue to be tried, and interim relief was justified. What conclusions, then, can we draw from this decision? As I said at the start, the court presents its conclusions as being based on well-established principles in the area of employee competition law. That presentation should not, however, mask the fact that this was a broad and unusual non-compete. The fact that the court was able to find a way through to saving the clause reveals the extent of the tools at its disposal. This decision continues, and I would argue builds upon, the spirit of Tillman. The English courts are willing to use common law contract law doctrines to read down unreasonable covenants. Between the competing normative considerations of inequality of bargaining power on the one hand and freedom of contract on the other, the courts come down firmly in favour of, of ensuring that at least some protection continues for an employer. Whether that provides sufficient inducement to ensure covenants are reasonable and to reduce the risk that employees aren't unreasonably restrained is a broader policy question. And that raises interesting points of contrast in light of the government's most recent proposals. Thank you for listening to the Litigation Podcast presented by Blackstone Chambers. Subscribe below to receive our latest episodes. Visit blackstonechambers.com to learn more.